kitchen is filling up with food. There's music in the hallway, everybody's in the mood. Hi, this is Michael Azarad, Editor-in-Chief of The Talk House, and welcome to The Talk House Music Podcast. This episode of The Talk House Music Podcast might feature two major players in the field of children's music, Dan Zanes and Sesame Street musical director Bill Sherman. But as you'll soon see, the conversation ranges much farther afield than just music for kids. Like, why and how do you make music at all? As the leader of the Grammy-winning Dan Zanes and Friends, Dan Zanes has been one of the most popular names in music for children for the past 15 years. He's made over a dozen popular and acclaimed albums for kids and played concerts all over the world. Bill Sherman's work on the Broadway production of In the Heights won him a 2008 Tony Award for Best Orchestrations, and he is a songwriter and orchestrator who's responsible for the music you hear on Sesame Street. He works with the many musicians who drop in and sing songs on the show, Janelle, Monet, Ed Sheeran, Will I Am, and many others, and is one of the driving forces behind such musical opuses as Guacamole the Musical, Glory of Cookies, and Grover Can Do It All. In the mid to late 80s, Zanes led the scrappy and beloved New England's roots rock band, the Del Fuegos. Zanes talks about how we went from playing in a rock band that had a good time all the time to making wholesome music for kids and how it helped him rediscover what he loved about making music in the first place. Sherman discusses how Sesame Street music is made, with a lot of care for one thing, and what it's like to work with the many stars who drop by the show, and lots of other stuff you've probably wondered about music at Sesame Street. What is the key to writing for kids? Zanes and Sherman do explore that, but they talk about a whole lot of other stuff, like life stuff. The conversation is perhaps a little saltier than one might expect, so cover your kids' ears. I studied the saxophone in high school. I wanted to be a jazz musician, which at the time both my parents were doctors, so they thought that was a fantastic idea for making money. And so the, I, I, I was really into it, and I, I, I went to college at, to Wesleyan University to study music, to study jazz saxophone. And uh, after a couple of years, I kind of just had this realization that, that wasn't, I wasn't as good. Like, I had good ideas, but I wasn't as good, and I didn't want to take the time to be as good as the great dudes. So I got uh, into West African music, and I went to Ghana my junior year of college to study West African drumming, because that sounded like the right idea at the time. And <laughs> retrospect <Makes> <laughs> was super fucking fun, so I'm I glad bet. I did that. Uh, and then, and then uh, my senior year, yeah, my senior college, I met this guy, Lynn Miranda at Wesleyan, and he, uh, we worked on his music theater shows. And I never was a big music theater fan. I never went to that many shows. My parents, I grew up on Long Island, and my parents brought me in to see shows from time to time, but it wasn't really like my thing. But I did it because it sounded like fun. And then I graduated from college, and we, uh, I moved to Manhattan, and I worked at MTV in the IT department, and I sat in the copy room, and I was pretty pathetic at that time. <laughs> and, then, and then all the while we were working on the show uh, called In the Heights. And In the Heights, you know, it took like eight years to make and we made it into this Broadway show. And then from there, I, I somehow convinced, oh, at the same time, I, I play in this group called Freestyle Love Supreme, which is like a hip hop improv comedy troupe. And the woman who became the executive producer of the electric company, she came and liked Freestyle Love Supreme. So sort of based her whole show 
or that kind of on this loosely on this group that I played in. And so I weaseled my way into being the music director of the electric company and we made like 60 episodes in a year and a half, which is a lot, which was a lot. And then I somehow, you know, and then at the same time Sesame Street was doing this overhaul of their music department, I, the guy I replaced had been there since 1969, which was pretty epic. So anyway, so I, you know, I got into that. What is a music director? Well, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> what are you, you know, doing? Dad, every day I wake up. I <laughs> what do you do, man? <laughs> I, you know, it's interesting. Music direction is like is so different from from media to media. Like in 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 the theater world, a music director is like like conducts or teaches all the vocals, gets all the music together, and then more often than not, is the conductor in the pit, conducting the band and playing and whatever, and making sure everything's cool with the show itself. A music director. A, Television is sort of like an all-encompassing music supervisor position. For me, for example, the Sesame Street, it's like I get the scripts, I figure out what the vibe of the tune is, I, I either write the tune myself or I send it to somebody to write, I get it back, I get it approved by the production, I arrange, I orchestrate, I record it with the band. Sesame Street has like this eight-piece band that records all the music, and then I get all that done, and then we underscore all the music once the episode has been made. So it's like a sort of all-encompassing thing. And then music, there's no real music directors on movies, for example, unless there's a musical part of a movie. That's more of like a music supervisor that finds the tunes and licenses the tunes and all this other shit. So if you get, if you get the script and you, and, you have, and you need to write a song, how long do you have to write it? It depends. Sometimes the way we work with Sesame Street, for example, it's like a week or two at the most. Um, sometimes we're way, really far ahead of it, and sometimes it's like I need it in two days. And then you have to, write, and then you write out. Do you write the actual parts for the band, or is that you do like a head arrangement, or how do you, how does that work? Usually, our composers will like write a demo up with like vocals and some whatever they feel like gets the point across, like in Logic or Pro Tools or whatever. And sometimes it's just guitar, sometimes it's just piano, sometimes it's a whole pop thing. And then they give it to us. And then the, I have a guy who works for me. His name's Joe Feidler. He's a jazz trombone player. He sort of. He doesn't sort of, he arranges and orchestrates all the music for the band, writes out all the parts and gets that all together. And then the band goes and plays it. And we have this great band of like half theater dudes, half like our guitar player plays with Bruce Hornsby, like all kinds of weird, interesting fellers. And, um, and that's it. It's fun. Sounds pretty cool. I'm still back at the going to school for saxophone part. Aren't you supposed to drop out of school and go and shoot dope? And I know, <laughs> isn't that I mean, the like, whole deal? At that time, I, yeah. I, I, I my parents would have really liked that. I, uh, I guess I, like, I knew I always wanted to be involved in music from about like 10th or 11th grade. Like I played, I went to this, this high school in Long Island that was all mostly jocks, like kids who played sports. And I played sports for most of my life. And then my junior year of high school, I was like, this is stupid. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm going to play the saxophone. So that, that, that was, a, you know, an interesting journey. But, uh, it, I don't, you know, I like the saxophone. And, and then I figured out that you could, like, get girls by playing the saxophone. And then it made mm. it even more fun, you know, as That's it were. a major incentive it was, right there. <laughs> but, like, in, in high school, I was, like, the super geek. Like, what is that guy doing? And then in college, I was like, holy cow, I can get laid with the saxophone. <laughs> Probably should continue along this path. And then, you know. <laughs> And then, uh, <laughs> and then, uh, and then, you know, I just, I just, it just fell off the, just fell off the, the saxophone playing, but it, you know, it sort of, it, it was definitely a helper path to get me where I am now for sure. Do you play on, uh, at all on Sesame street? I don't, I did play once last year. We had a, we have an annual gala and, and Michael Buble was on the show on the, we, this live performance we do. 
and we needed like a big band vibe. So I, I whipped out the saxophone for the first time in probably 10 years. <laughs> nice. And I, and, and the, the also interesting part about this is the saxophone player, the reed player in the Sesame street band is my fourth grade music teacher. Wow. Which is great. And, uh, wow. so he and I were playing in a section with Michael Buble at Cipriani's. And so that was a big, you know, <laughs> head trip moment for me, but it's, it's pretty cool. Wow. So what's it's your journey? funny, man. I played, it was, it, it was just super organic. I played rock and roll in my twenties and I wasted my youth playing in a <laughs> rock band called the Del Fuegos out of Boston. And, um, and, uh, the major thing about that for me was just that I lived, you know, mm-hmm. I was just just bought into the lifestyle part of it all way more than the music making part of it and um but i but i lived you know so i was some i'm just just for that alone man i'm glad we didn't sell one more record than we did or one more ticket or anything you know because it was you know such a tool for destruction in my case but um but it but i learned a lot man we worked with this guy mitchell Froom, who's his first record was our first record and then he went on to do crowded house and elvis costello and randy newman and all these kind of heavyweights and um so we learned how to make records from him and then um and then i just stepped back i just stepped as far back as i could because i was so beat down by the whole thing after four records and the touring and everything and i I had no idea why this was a good idea. I couldn't remember, you know, I couldn't remember <laughs> what was so exciting about it in the first place, why I thought this is something I should be doing. And because um, in the beginning, it was such a social thing, you know, and, and, if, and if people in little clubs in Boston, if people didn't dance, then it wasn't even a gig, you know, that's that was how it was. Everybody in the room was in was a part of what was happening. And um and then we got more successful and the wall went up and, you know, we weren't connected to the audience at all. So when I stepped back, I just listened to bluegrass and gospel and, and dance hall, you know, things that were really connected to communities. And then I thought, oh, that's what it is. It's it's social. And uh, so I, and I decided I would never do it again if I couldn't do it and have it be social, you know. And so when my daughter was born, I was just trying to, I had made a record, a pop record, and and uh, and it came out in nineteen, ninety-four, ninety-five, or something, and somewhere in the nineties. And and um, I, uh, at the same time, I was thinking about all ages music because I grew up listening to Lead Belly and and um, Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie, and and um, I was trying to think about what I liked about that music and why that was good for me as a kid and what the modern day equivalent might be, and. Um, and I uh, and I thought I'd try and make it, so I, I was updating folk songs and just trying to make 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 some, you know, just a recording to give out to people in the neighborhood for Christmas, basically. And because um, I was I was seeing everybody was, you know, they'd have a kid and they'd go to Tower Records and get some things off the rack and they'd bring them home and they're too commercial or too this or too that or it was children's music and they wanted something they could all listen to so then they just get out the Beatles records and then that's that you know then everybody's listening to Beatles for the next 80 years you know and and um and I, but I felt like there was some window where there was music that would that would help young people see the world you know help help introduce us to the mysteries of life you know in some way and um and, you know, so much of the Beatles music or whatever it is, is, you know, it's about romantic love, sexual love. And that's just not part of a three-year-old's experience, you know. So <laughs> there's, there's there's another opportunity. And um, anyway, I just, I tried to make it and um, made this cassette. Nobody cared about my solo record. And uh, everybody wanted more copies of this cassette. So I just said, 
that's what I'm going to do, man. I'm just going to start a record company and I'm only going to make music for young people, you know, or or I thought of it as all ages music, you know, Mm -hmm. only going to make all ages music and I'm going to do it on my terms and it's going to be handmade and I'll use whoever's around. If it's, you know, amateurs or celebrities or whoever, you know, we'll just do it that way and, and, um, we'll make it quick and we'll make it cheap and we'll make it artful and sophisticated and handmade and all that stuff. And that's what I've been doing ever since. (laughs) I've, I've, you know, having been involved now in this field of children's music forever, it seems like ever, I have one one fundamental question for you, which is this, is like, I get CDs and I attend conferences of guys who, or women, people who have children and then, you know, get inspired by having children, as did I, as did you, and you know, you have this thing and you you, you want to entertain it and you want to see it smile until you're either like shoving carrots up your nose or like, you know, running around making loud noises <laughs> or in many people's cases, they're like, you know, they, they pick up the guitar again. It's an excuse to go back to this thing. Yeah, man. And so, and I think that's wonderful. The, the thing that I find interesting is that people think that they can turn that into some sort of commercial thing. So there's this rash of, of dudes who just had kids or guys who just, or people who just had kids who then want to put out records and so my fundamental question is like, there's about three of you guys that really make it work and are really like at the top of this art form. It's you and a couple other people. And so my question was, how do you think that happened? Other than you make really good records. That's clear, but there's something else. I don't know what it is. I, I, I just always interest me having gotten CDs every day from yeah. somewhere in somewhere and they want to write for Sesame Street or they want to be, they want to know how I got to where I am. And I, you know, I'm in, I'm a little bit different cause I don't really, I don't write songs for me or for, I don't make records of myself. I write songs for Sesame Street and they own them and that's, it's a different, it's a television show. It's a very different thing, but this it's, it's a very small number of people that make this work. So anyway, that was a long question. But. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's interesting, man. I know when I started out, um, there weren't that many people doing it and the people that were doing it were doing what you know was called children's music and uh, Tom Chapin, Raffi, Ella Jenkins who's always been great um, but I was trying to think you know I felt like I was part of this generation that wanted to have this shared experience with their kids and, and so I was thinking about all ages music or family music what's that going to be like And um, but I think for me you know I think i I mean, I don't know, you know, I don't know why anybody gets the breaks and other people don't. I mean, I'm a white dude, so I know why that particular break uh, is effective. I mean, you know, here in America, the white dudes get all the, the access and all that. But, you know, given that, you know, like why one white dude over another white dude? Um, I don't know. You know, I don't know. There's there's good people out there. But I do know that uh, for me, what was important was that I was going to try and make records that reflected my neighborhood are reflected, you know, who was around. So it was important for me from the very beginning that they were somewhat like multiracial, multicultural to some degree, you know, cause that's the world we live in, you know? And that was for me, such a great thing after being in a rock band with, with, you know, four white dudes conquering the world as we, so we thought, um, to be able to be in a group of men and women, you know, multiracial men and women, it just felt like, the whole thing got elevated because of just the the fundamental structure of it just makes better music you know makes a better atmosphere better conversation you know so all that stuff i think was and it 
I don't know, it just feels so different to me, you know, and I, so I feel like for me, man, it was, you know, the people around me, you know, I just, I think if I did anything well or anything differently, it was that I, I was able to, you know, it was the people that were invited to the party. It wasn't really me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just the, it was just the, the guest list. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I think that, I think there was that, you know, that was probably the biggest, the biggest part of it, you know, for me, I don't know, but I just, you know, I, I, and I also felt like the whole thing with rock and roll for me was just so self-serving, you know, it's just always about me. Mm-hmm. It's like, what can I get out of this? You know? And I thought, children's music you can't do that you got to think about you know you got to want to be useful useful member of society and so I tried to keep that in mind and um, you know however that however that unfolds I don't know but I just I just thought man I've you know the world's seen enough of you know Dan Zane's trying to grab all he can grab (laughs) (laughs) you seem to talk about like the communal aspect of it all which I think is interesting because like at least for us at Sesame Street we're always debating over you know is the parent going to like this or is the kid going to like this? The goal being, of course, that both like it. Yeah. But I feel like I often, I, I when composers ask me, like, what, how do I do this? The only recommendation I give them is not to write it like you're writing for a kid, but write it like you're writing a pop song or a folk song or whatever song. It may be lyrically driven towards a child, but in the end, it's all fucking music, you know? <laughs> so it's like this idea of like dumbing things down, as it were, for lack of a better term, for children, I think is so interesting. Also, because at least my kids, like they listen to every pop star that's on the radio. It's not like they, they you know, go for the stuff that's different. So anyway, I don't know. I'd always think about that. The, how, how to, that's the question I get asked the most is how do you... What's the key to writing for kids? And I don't know, first of all, I don't know that there's a key. (laughs) But that's a good answer. Well, there isn't one. Yeah. If anybody knows it out there, then give me a call. But, uh, (laughs) but, uh, you know, I I don't know. I I never, whenever when I sit down, like, to write something, do I go, oh, like, what would my kids think? That being said, I do bring my kids. Do you ever do this? You bring your kids down and play that? Well, your daughter's 20. It's a little bit different. I bring my kids down and make them listen to the thing, and I can tell almost immediately if they like it or not, because my youngest daughter will be like, nope, and just like walk away. (laughs) She's a super tough critic, whereas my older daughter, who's a little more forgiving, will just just sort of sit there, and then it'll end. She'll let it end, and she'll be like, "Eh, no, and then she'll walk away. So at least she listens to the whole song, which I find to be nice. Uh, it's great, man. I used to do that with my daughter. Now I can. Now my daughter, I can. You know, I can do things like sequencing with her. Oh, like, yeah. What do you think of the sequence of this record? <laughs> <laughs> or I, or or she'll take photos for mm. me. You know, she's so I still try and keep her in the mix. But you know, it's like, come on, it's a family business. You totally. benefit from this too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it seems like Sesame Street's such a proud tradition of that. You know, that seemed like something I, I know I always loved about that. An electric company too. Electric Company, I was actually just a little bit old when Sesame Street came out. So mm-hmm. Electric Company was the one that I, you know, I could really focus on that. So, But it seems like that's such a proud tradition of being able to navigate the, the intergenerational thing. Mm-hmm. But that's so that's built into the entire um, uh, view, the philosophy of the show to do that, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, when you... You jump into something that is 40... We're going to season 46 or something. Yeah, <laughs> With something that's like well older than I am and, and has this you know tradition, like you said, and this list of things that have been uber successful for 46 years, you try to figure out like how you can fit into that and how you can 
make that make the music speak in a way to the kids of today and blah 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 blah, but still sort of paying homage to the past and the songwriters of the past and like with Sesame Street it's always like it's like curriculum you know it's like it's you're you're getting you're trying to get like word parts and 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 stem learning and teaching and all this other stuff and so it's it's always like writing songs that are about silent e's and transformer h's and things like like I had to take grammar classes or like um seminars to to learn all this stuff again because i was like oh. <laughs> yeah so how much are you involved in the lyrical i'm not that's the interesting thing about sesame street is all of the all the lyrics are written by our script writers and all approved by the education department the research department at sesame street so i'm usually just handed a script or a page of lyrics and then just set them that's 95 percent of the time five percent wow. of the time because to get like a song with lyrics vetted and it'd be okay for the kids and also teach and also do all the stuff that needs to do there's sort of like a certain you know kind of person that, that can do that it's tough so you're elton john yes you get the you get bernie top and hands I you the lyrics elton john. You. Yeah, that's correct <laughs> i said that so effortlessly yes i am uh, uh but yeah yeah it's just it's just it's some it's setting a lot of stuff to music and uh and then but but that being said there's a lot of collaboration with the lyricists like all of theirs just have been working there for 20 some odd years and so they wow so they are they they know how it's done but they're also open to like making the sound current and and making the song rock just as hard as the lyrics rock so that we can all teach and laugh and jump and dance you know so wow man i was watching the uh janelle monet segment that billboard did Mm -hmm. about her visit to sesame street that that part's got to be incredible yeah the celebrity writing thing is fun like I, i finally have settled into a a thing with it where it's like you know it, it's the same thing as as being called to write for uh, their record she just happened to be writing for sesame street you know so like janelle monet i didn't talk to her i didn't have, i i got sent a page of lyrics i listened i've listened to janelle monet for years and she's awesome and so i was like i can i can do this and so i just wrote that tune and it was just super easy it was you know and then she listened and the, the all time you know the great experiences are when when somebody when a celebrity comes onto Sesame Street and says something to the effect of, wow, this could be on my record, or wow, you really nailed it. And th- that we were just in LA last week, and Gwen Stefani was very much like that. She thought the song super nailed it. So that's always pretty cool. And, and also just to get to write in all those different styles, like, you know, yeah. Nick Jonas and Gwen Stefani and Janelle Monet and Will I Am and Bruno Mars and Ed Sheeran and all these people, you know, it's fun. And you say, and you get to say that you worked with them too, which is, you know, good, good fun. But yeah, when I made my first family record, um, I was friends with Suzanne Vega and, and Cheryl Crow lived right around the corner and so I invited them to sing on it and then and then people were saying when I was getting ready to make the second one people would say well who's going to be who are the guests going to be on this one and then I thought oh man I'm kind of stuck with this thing but it's but it turns out to be I mean I'm, I imagine you're like I am where you know if you're if you're into music you're fans of a lot of people you know you just you love a certain you know it's like a big handful of people that you just love and so you know for me that part's been getting to see you know thinking oh what if philip glass came in and just played a little pump organ you know how would that what would that be like and finding out that he's that not only would it be okay but he'd be up for it and he'll write the piece to attach to the end of the song you know all that stuff is just it just gets to be you just think wow how far can we go what Mm -hmm. if you know what if we have we'll we'll have lunch with the five blind boys and then we'll just walk up into the living room and record yeah it's crazy. yeah just the, the kind of at least for me the kind of access that that it gives you and and 
just to watch also how those people work. Like I was just in LA and, and at these very famous recording studios that you kind of hear about in fairy tales. And you go, <laughs> and you go to them and you're like, holy shit. And then you watch just the way they make pop records these days and the way people record stuff and how they tune things and how they mix things. And you're just sort of sitting there learning. And I, you know, I learn something new every time I go to a weird, very expensive studio with a weird, very expensive celebrity. Every time. <laughs> yeah, man. I think, I feel like that's, you know, the times that I've gone into do something for somebody else I've learned so much about what it means to actually be a professional mm -hmm. from these people you know like doing working with Lou Reed they said well you don't have to worry about Lou he'll be there on time that's just his thing he's mm -hmm. always gonna whether he's cranky or not that's another story but he'll be there <laughs> on time and um you know just to see who shows up prepared who doesn't mm -hmm. and then how you how you sort things out or who wants to stay for the extra couple hours and and work out you know, two and three more vocal parts mm -hmm. and then possibly play an instrument on right. it. You know, it's, it's crazy when Leela Downs came in and, you know, we just, we just spent the day, you know, the first part of the day was just hanging out. Right. And then, you know, things just unfolded so slowly and naturally and uh, you just, it's just fun. Yeah. I just love it when you, when you get these people that have all this notoriety and are these very famous people, but then when you sit down and you just become two musicians sitting at a table, you're just like any other person, any other people sitting around talking about music. You just happen to have this crazy batshit career and I do what I do. And we're, <laughs> but we're still speaking the same language, you know, and we're still talking about music. And I've been impressed with a lot of celebrities who, who you know, you, you see them in their world and their thing and then they come in and they sing and you're just like, holy shit. Like, I get it. You know, it's like just, you, you didn't, you wouldn't think that they, you, you think sometimes you think that they're all show and then they come in and they have this innate gift and you're just it's, it's amazing right that's why you're so successful <laughs> <laughs> ah it's not just your good looks they're wonderful it's that you can actually sing that's great I did um, I did a duet with Carol Channing we did Hello Dolly and um, of course I'd, I'd record yeah man <laughs> who's gonna pass up that chance yeah, never and uh, I went out with my daughter out to San Francisco and and, um, you know, we had we'd gone, th it had taken months to set this up. And finally the, the morning came and she showed up and with her, her manager, who is also her fourth husband and, and they had been sweethearts back in junior high school Whoa. and uh, it was just so beautiful, but she showed up, she wasn't sure if it was video or, or audio recording. So mm -hmm. she was dressed up. She, you know, she is makeup had been done, hair and makeup. She was ready for anything. And later that day, going out to, um, uh, you know, uh, Northern California, above San Francisco for a show that night. Mm -hmm. And um, and it was just, I mean, it was just so moving to see this person is embodies everything I love about showbiz and about the hard work part of it. You know, there's, mm -hmm. there's nothing glamorous about what, what was happening that day, but she showed up and completely plugged into it. And I just thought, this is decades and decades of of ups and downs too, you know, mm. and I think people bring the ups and downs with them a lot of times and everybody's got them, you know, you can't survive for that long and not have the, the peaks and valleys. And I feel like that informs so much of how a lot of these people put themselves into the music, you know, like not, it's nothing's taken for granted at that, at that stage. But I was, I was so into it, man. At one point she turned to her husband, she started hearing me sing and she turned to her husband and she said, Harry, you know, he reminds me of, and I'm kind of hanging on for this. She said, Louis Armstrong. And then, and then about 10 minutes later, she looks over, she goes, Harry, you know who he reminds me of? 
Barry Manilow. <laughs> <laughs> Two distinctly the same people. Louis Armstrong. It's so Manilow. great, man. That's awesome. That's yeah, story. it's just it's so moving. Yeah. So I have a question. <clears throat> Dan, what are you working on now? I'm trying to figure out the next the next step. I might do a um a record of um Lead Belly's music for children, mm. which he's kind of the template for everything that I do. I mean, it has been from the very, very beginning. And um, so I'm talking to the people at the Smithsonian about doing that, which would be which would be pretty fun. How does Lead Belly lend himself to kids? Um, well, he, I mean, he knew, I think, about 500 tunes that he had in his head. And when he lived in New York, he did a lot of performing for young people. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there's a, a record out on Folkways called um, Lead Belly Sings for Children, I think, something like that. And it's got... Everything, Skip to My Lou, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, um, Rock Island Line. You know, these are songs that he would do, and he would go down to Elizabeth Irwin High School, um, perform down there. So he had he had um, an emotional connection to young audiences, which is really intense. It is intense. Yeah. And, um, you know, and he had the repertoire, and he had the, you know, he knew a lot of the dances and the movement. I mean, all the stuff that we that we know now is part of the the early childhood music education curriculum he was he was doing all that as something for fun and for Mm -hmm. entertainment and um so thinking about that and uh i don't know i'm just you know i'm trying to i listen to some of my older records and i think well i could never top this (laughs) 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 what am i i can't why would i even try this is perfect tiring yeah Yeah. i thought about that too recently i've been writing songs like you know, with Sesame Street also, it's like a minute and a half, two minutes long. Like, I haven't written a full-on song in <laughs> 15 years. Like, I don't even know what that's like. Sometimes when I sit down to do it, I'm just like, oh, I can't do that. I, I got, like, verse, chorus. That's pretty much it, you know? But uh, bridge? Never, never bridge. Uh, <laughs> do you write You write musicals, though, too? You did I, something with Jeffrey Sellers. I did. I wrote a musical called Fly. It's like a newer, darker version of Peter Pan. And it was at the Dallas Theater Center, like, a year ago. And uh, it's fun. You know, musical writing is, again, not something I ever had the idea of getting into, but it's super fun. I mean, it's like um, it definitely uses a different part of my brain. And like when you're when you're writing narratively and trying to further a story and still trying to make a cool song at the same time, it's very weird. You know, it's not like you're trying to make a catchy chorus. It's like you're trying to get the story from here to here. And so it's a little it's a really different part of my brain. And I like I, I I have this weird thing where I don't. My wife also, we don't really like early musicals, <laughs> like the whole Stephen Sondheim catalog. Like we're not really that into and we go to them all and we leave and we go, nah, what are we doing tomorrow? You know, and we're not that into it. And so, and so it's a, I, it's a very weird place for me to be in. Like I respect it because it's really fucking hard, but I, it's not like the first thing I would listen to. Like I'm not, I go to see musicals all the time, but I, it's not like. I guess it's not like when I was a kid, I was like musicals. Never was yeah, <laughs> that. Was, that was yeah. really but that being said, I think what I did with Fly, which was really cool, which I enjoyed, was sort of used like the whole Neverland people are all these women and they all drum. So it was like sort of using my West African drumming background to sort of wow. populate the sound of this island. So it's all like these huge Brazilian drums and everybody on the stage plays and stuff. So it's that that part was really cool for me. Wow. I at least got to do that. And um, I don't know what the future of that is, but um, we'll see. I fill the day with memories, and I know they're gonna last. So touch the train. Oh, 
Ralph and it's like three or four other guys as far as my my brain goes in the world of children's music and like then there's like a second tier of other people but it's like people who are are hitting it and and making it happen is a very small group of people yeah the thing I mean the thing about it that I feel like I mean I, I kind of think the whole thing's gonna as an idea might might cave in on itself if it like does. everything <laughs> You know, if it doesn't, if it doesn't look more like the world we live in, you know, if it continues to be such a crew of white dudes and, you know, and some women, but it, but it's, but that idea that it's, um, it's almost like the 1950s in a way, you know, it's, it is, it's really, uh, I know there may be a cultural piece sometimes, you know, that, that white families may be more used to this idea, but of, of children's music or family music, but I think, I mean, that's part of what, when I tour, um, you know, we always try and invite uh, local youth groups to come and join us, you know, especially if they're operating in traditions that we're not necessarily hitting. So it tends to, I mean, it's everything from West African drum and dance, um, tap dancers, Peruvian family bands, mariachi groups. Um, man, I could just go on uh, Filipino string ensembles, you know, um, whoever's around. Um, and a lot of times these are groups that are working in the communities that don't get invited to perform in the, you know, they're not invited necessarily to the performing arts venues that we'll be playing at. So the idea is, is I mean, it lifts the show up for starters. Just musically, there's a whole other thing that's happening. You know, we'll, we'll step off and let them do their thing. Then we'll come back and we'll all jam together on a couple of songs. And, um, you know, we've gotten really good at, at figuring out how we can you know, finding that intersection mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, of a Puerto Rican bomba group and our music or, um, uh, 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 you know, whatever the case may be. But it's, um, or, you know, South Sudanese uh, refugees in the outside of Boston doing primarily vocal music. You know, we can find a way that we can, you know, find a couple tunes where we can all sort of settle in. And it's, you know, I always think that's a nice thing for the audience to see, too, you know, how music will build these bridges but part of it is access too, you know. I mean, like the doors open easily for me, and um, so if we can kind of hold the doors open for some of these other groups, then um, you know I feel like that's in some small way. I hope that's a way that we can, and also maybe get people excited by what family music might look like, and and just you know keep saying like, hey man, you can do this too, you know. And there's been some great spin-offs from my band. Um, Father Goose, the Jamaican guy who's been with me since the very, very beginning. Um, he's made a couple record a couple records that were really good. So that's, you know, family music from the West Indian perspective. And um, our fiddle player, Elena Moon Park, who's Korean American, made a record um, called Rabbit Days and Dumplings, which is um, uh, family music from East Asia, mm-hmm. which is really cool, and and um, our guitar player Sonia de los Santos, who's from uh, Monterrey, Mexico, she's just about to put out a record, uh, primarily in Spanish, um, from the Mexican perspective. So, so my groups, you know, we're happened, <laughs> they're doing man. their part. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but they have a group. <laughs> you got to get a group, man. It's group. fun. <laughs> it's the best. But sports, you know, you're talking about playing sports, and I, and it made me think, you know, because I used to be really into sports too, and I think there's such a, 
correlation between what you know you got to play you're on a team mm -hmm. you know you're on a team and just what that means and uh, playing in a band is like that i think you know it's it's a it's such a beautiful experience to have working with others mm -hmm. it's just not sometimes i wonder what this whole you know culture of individualism that we have around us you know how much that really benefits us in the end i, some, I sometimes think that you know the maybe the culture of community is more um, well, I don't think, I know, for me, I know it's more important. You know, I just, I do. I could, you know, I could sit around all day and be an individual, but I could be very unhappy and disconnected. <laughs> mm -hmm. I was fine with Sesame Street at the times when you see it being, affecting a community and being, like we work, we do a lot of outreach programs with military families and, mm. and inner city families and wherever. And also the other thing about Sesame Street is that it's global. And then, yeah. you know, you'll, you'll write a song one day and then a week later it will be in East Asia or it will be in, and you're asking, people are asking to have it translated into like 40 different languages. And then you're like, holy shit. <laughs> wow. wow. You know? And so that, that part of it is like the, that, that aspect of it. And you have no, you know, when you're in your basement writing it too, and you have no idea where it's going to be a week from now is a very strange feeling. Wow. Um, but yeah, like the outreach stuff, like when we. We have this annual gala, and they show movies of all the all the outreach programs that we've done, like incarcerated families and military families, and all kinds, you know. And you realize that the impact you actually are having, because you forget. At least I do. Yeah. When you're, when you're just like in the in the factory making widgets. That's what my dad says making widgets <laughs> in the factory. In the factory, you know, you don't, and you just, you know song goes out into the world and you don't know where it's going to go or who it's going to affect and how they're going to affect it and then you i'm sure you get this like fan letters and stuff like that you like can't believe yeah where your song has been and how it's affected someone and there's stuff on youtube of people singing your songs and stuff like that you just i i never like and you know ever thought that that was a thing that would ha happen to me you know and it's that that part of it is kind of just like you can't it's, it's almost impossible to explain how that feels you know because that a song that you wrote could mean something that you had no intention of it meaning that yeah. thing to that person you know i always find that to be very like the most humbling thing that happens with this is you know my daughter's choir is singing whatever can you send us the music and yeah. we really like it and she was having a tough time and listened to it and now she's happy or whatever it is and yeah it's just that kind of shit is just you can't you can't make that stuff up you know yeah man it's it's so deep it's it's true though you know if it's your job you can forget what you know music music saved my life i'm yeah. sure it saved yours too man yeah i know it's sometimes it, it's it's easy to forget i think that might be my favorite thing about the age of computers is just how quickly people can respond and say you know tell you these stories mm -hmm. and and because those kind of those can kind of get me out of bed sometimes mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah so how does it work? You write a tune and then it goes out to the different Sesame Streets around the world and they plug, you know, they'll, they have lyric writers who will do translations and... Yeah, I think it depends on the song. Like, like the, the first year I got there, I wrote this song called What I Am with, with Will I Am, which was a big, which was a huge tune. And uh, it, was, it was really well received. And then we would just get emails from Mexico that they're translating it into Spanish and then, you know, all other places and... You see videos of kids in Jamaica and kids in Europe dancing along to it. It's pretty, wow. yeah, that kind of shit. Wow. So do you feel compelled to stay on top of, of music, contemporary music, and 
or feel compelled or do you like to? <laughs> I do. I was, was going to ask you. I was going to ask that too because people always ask me, what am I listening to? And I always say, on my way home, I either listen to CNN or I listen to comedy because I don't know about you, but like I'm so in music all day long that like the the pleasure aspect of it has sadly not been lost, but like I don't really listen to music other than when I'm working. And when I do, I'm listening all the time, but it's a, that's a very strange thing. But I, you know, because of my daughters and because of what my job is, I, I am sort of up on what's going on, not on like what's hip this week, but I pretty much know what's hip this month, I'd like to say, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and when I'm in the, the car with my daughters, they just want to listen to like the same eight songs by the same eight people, you know? And they love it. And they, and they only want those songs. Right now it's like Bruno Mars, Uptown Funk, and Nick Jonas, and Ellie, Ella Henderson, which is a great song, Ghost, that song's killer. But, um, and some of them are amazing. And some of them are like, I can't, I can't listen to this anymore. They listen to that and they listen to the cast recording of Aladdin. Those are the things that my kids listen to. That's wow. it. It's deep. It's like deep. And they know all the words and they're two and four. And, it's, and my wife can't stand it at this point. We're sort of over it. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, especially like when you're writing for one of these celebrities, like you got to get in their head and you got to know their music. So like I just did this thing with Nick Jonas. And so I listened to a lot of Nick Jonas because that's what the gig was, you know? And so, and it's fun, you know, you get this sort of like chameleon aspect of writing. Like you had mentioned before, there's like there's bluegrass, there's folk, and it's like, you get to like write in those styles and stuff. That's the other really fun thing about Sesame Street. It's like any genre at any time. Like on a given day, we could go from like a bossa nova to a metal tune to a funk tune to a classical tune. It just, you know, and that's kind of, that part of it's really interesting because you're just always on your toes and you never really sink into like, at least we don't, like the Sesame Street sound, which is great. And we do it all the time, but like we also go in and out of these other places. So Yeah. Wow. That's got to be fun. Yeah. And when you're like, you know, you got like distorted guitar one second and then like four mandolin parts and a banjo <laughs> and then a guy playing accordion and then like, you know, the washboard or whatever the hell it is. You know, it's like well, on that, you know, you sort of leave work and you're like, well, that was not normal. That was great. <laughs> I'm going home, you know. So. Do you record um, mostly at the, uh, are you on the lot? Where no. You- Sesame Street films at uh, Kaufman Astoria, but we've, we, we do all the audio, all the music recording on Fifth Street in a basement, in a basement, really? in a basement studio on Fifth Street between Second and Third, and it's we've been doing it for years. We did all the electric company there too, and our drummer owns the the ground floor and the studio, so he's there all the time, and so we can just have it's easy access, and the studio sounds great, and it fits us just perfectly. Like we do the rhythm section in the morning for a couple hours, and we take a break, and then we do the horns in the afternoon, and then we put it all together. Wow, it's fun. So do you do, how many days a week do you record? Usually like once when we're in production. So we start filming actually on Monday and we've been in the studio for the past three weeks filming the songs that we're going to be shooting. And then we film all the songs for the next four weeks. They do an episode a day at, at Sesame Street. So like, you know, the average TV show, they film an episode in like three months. We do an episode a day. <laughs> <laughs> and Why so, waste time? Right, I know. So <laughs> we just hit it. And so uh, we, we, we film the episode. Uh, oh, we record the music and then they shoot it all. And then I'm at the studio sort of making sure the vocals are cool and all this other stuff and making sure we're lip flapping correctly. <laughs> like that that's a thing. <laughs> and then, uh, and then, uh, and then they, they get cut and stuff and then we go and we do all the underscoring afterwards. And then in the meantime, there's like other little, there's, there's the, the street story, which is like that first eight to 12 minutes of the show where the puppets and everything. And then there's all this other stuff. There's cookie monster gets lost in different movies and there's Grover does 
this super grover does this there's all these other sort of inserty things that we do and that's it that's wow. fine wow sounds like so how many how many songs do you do in the course of a month it depends like we were, we were filming 18 episodes starting on monday for the next three weeks or so or four weeks actually and there's probably i didn't write them all but there's probably 24 or 25 songs in there somewhere some episodes have four songs but again like a song could be 30 seconds or it could be a minute and a half but it's never longer than a minute and a half so it's first chorus mm, out <laughs> <laughs> there's get- no like uh, guitar solos and there's no uh, bridges at all you tried to add but the numbers came out wrong you tried to sing but you didn't know the whole song you tried to cook but the food it didn't taste right you tried to dunk but you didn't get enough Sounds good to have a job. <laughs> sometimes, I mean, you know, sometimes no. Sometimes you want more of a job. Sometimes you don't. I mean, I, I'm, I don't know about you, but my priorities changed a lot when I had kids. It wasn't. I wish I. I just got focused on having something that was regular because guys in our line of work, it's hard to have something that's regular, you know? Yeah. And so living like that when you, other people are depending on you is hard. I always thought. Yeah. It's funny. Cause when my daughter was five and six, I started touring at that point, you know, to touring more. And, um, so I'd be gone almost every weekend once things really picked up mm-hmm. and, um, it was, you know, I, I missed out on a lot looking back on it mm-hmm. but i was you know but i'd be back and i'd you know kind of read to her every night and do all these things regularly through the week but, but she was in school so definitely did miss out on miss out on quite a bit mm-hmm. but um but at the but on the other hand it was so exciting that something was working right <laughs> that was like right. I'm, I'm i'm doing this yeah my wife and i had been talking about that a lot she had been home with our kids for like the last three years or four, three and a half years and then got this amazing job and has started working like in the city full time, but in the city, like three days a week. And so Mm. just changes things, you know, the dynamics change. And so I'm like, take them to school in the morning, work from home, record songs in the basement, pick them up. They hang out with the babies. You know, it's just like a weird, yeah, like switcheroo, you know, so, but it works. Yeah. It's hard to, um, I kept just trying to gauge everything, make sure everybody was happy. Like, I know I'm not around, but is everybody happy? (laughs) Okay. uh, (laughs) I'm not sure if they were, I think, I think they were happy. And then sometimes I got to be friendly with Carl Sandberg's daughter. And, um, and I did a record based on songs from a songbook that he had songs he had compiled and put out in a songbook. And, he was such an intense dude. And I said, well, you know, he was gone all the time. He was always traveling. And uh, what, you know, how was that? And she said, oh, we were happy to get rid of him. He was so cranky when he was around. We had to be quiet so he could write. <laughs> oh, that might be me too. <laughs> kind of cranky when I'm around. The thing that was crazy, it was crazy for me was I felt like we had some, you know, we had some years and, and I got divorced when my daughter was 13. So... Um, which is not a good thing for a family music artist to do. Um, it's better to just stay happily married for the rest of your life. That would by, you know, be by far the best scenario. <laughs> but it didn't work out that way, you know. But um, and we had a few years where things were difficult, and, and it's, been, it's been really nice to feel like as 
as adults, you know, that we've been able to reconnect, you know, to on some on some planes that I didn't know existed, mm-hmm. you know, as far as communication goes, and and that and it, adult experiences that I had were of of some value to her and vice versa you know that we would be able to share experiences that we had and and um identify you know mm-hmm. as as adults as a I mean, you know we're all broken in one way or another and to be able to find those things and talk about them and it's a you know kind of a kind of a spiritual thing so. to be honest i had the same experience my parents got divorced when i was it was like eight years ago when i was 26 or something and it's that same thing. It's that you you start to know your parents separately mm-hmm. and then know them as friends as opposed to parents. Yeah. And then you find out very different sides of them, which is fa- I find to be fascinating. I mean, like, oh, that's who you are. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nice, you know? So I agree with you. I mean, like, down or not, it was a good thing for us. I mean, it's just sort of opened up the experience and opened up the lines of communication for sure that had like been sort of dormant for many many years jump up day is breaking jump up let's get shaking i know you're lying down but jump up and we'll dance around jump up the bells are ringing and i hear friends are singing oh yeah it's a crazy sound Jump up and we'll dance around. So when my first daughter was was starting watching Sesame Street, and by the way, having kids uh, uh, who who watch Sesame Street is both a blessing and a curse because for for maybe six months you're the shit because you go to work with Cookie Monster, and then like <laughs> sometime after that you're like my dad's a loser who writes songs for Cookie Monster. Yeah. You know, so it goes. But anyway, one of the first things that came up and I've now learned plays all the time is Dan is you playing on a stoop in Brooklyn. The tune is jump up and it's awesome. And it is, I, you know, what's interesting about it now that I'm thinking about it is that it, you know, all our, our episodes sort of have an arc to them, but it kind of fits into every episode <laughs> and apparently is playing in every episode and is a great song. And the, the best part I think about it and what my kids loved about it was, it was just, it's, it's you and your daughter in the beginning, I, I think is that your daughter. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then all these people come join and you're having the best fucking time that anyone could ever have and my and i my kids would like they get up and they dance because they're just that the excitement is there you know it's not it's such a simple idea and the song is fantastic and so anyway oh, when did man. that happen and what's what's that about that's cool i i uh, i appreciate hearing that that thing's been running for over 10 years just talk about community by the way i mean you, we've been talking about community forever like that's the ultimate visual representation of community it's like here comes the bass player here comes the thing and now we're all playing a thing together that's yeah great. and it's so simple right oh, you so know <laughs> but uh, no that was that was a thrill for me. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've actually tried to get on the program and go to the street, but it doesn't matter because that video just runs and runs and runs. <laughs> You've made and, your, your major mark with that for sure. Yeah. And, um, and it was cool for me too, because, you know, when I was thinking about, you know, how am I going to do this and how do I want it? You know, there were so few examples of, of a deliberately multicultural, multiracial approach to children's entertainment. And Sesame Street was, was the one, you know, I mean, that was the, that was the one. And so when I read the book, um, which I can't remember what it's called, but it came out a few years ago about Sesame Street. And, uh, and they're talking about the climate in the sixties when they were, when, you know, when they're saying, look, this is important, you know, kids have to look at the screen and see themselves, you know, that, that if they don't, 
certain things are going to be, or, or if that's all they see, you know, certain things are being reinforced and just the importance of it. And, um, and the beauty of it too, you know, it's not just important. It doesn't sound like fun, you know, it's just fun too. And, um, so, you know, so for me to be, you know, to be on Sesame street and that, you know, to have a video that's been running for this long with them is, is, is great. Cause it's a part of a tradition that was really important for me to, um, learn from, you know, and to, and for me to know that, no, I'm, you know, not only is thinking about this, um, it's, you know, to be thinking about this approach and to, you know, cause you know, it's always been important for me that my band, when kids come to the shows, they look up on stage, they can see themselves up there. You know, it's, it's, um, just to know that, that in, at the time when Sesame Street was being developed, that that was something that it actually had resistance. You know, a lot of people didn't believe in it. A lot of people thought it was not important and not necessary and a lot of extra work and who really cares. And, you know, so the ground that they broke, you know, for me was, um, it was, it was critical. It was, it was critical. So yeah, man, Sesame Street. I mean, I get every month I'll get a call from some, from a new parent saying, I just saw you. <laughs> <laughs> I moved to a new neighborhood and a woman drove down the street yesterday and, uh, and stopped as I was about to cross the street. She stopped. She said, you're on TV, aren't you? You're on Sesame Street. And I said, yeah. That's she said, awesome. okay, good. See ya. Said, That's awesome. <laughs> it's yeah. a great song. The whole thing just worked. And I, I don't, you know, maybe that's why it continues to air a hundred times. It's good, <laughs> you know? It's funny. They, they, they use archival material. Like there, but there's like five or six things that have really withstood the test of time over the last 10 years. And that's one of them. It's, it's great. It's awesome. Wow. That's, that's, it's, it's a good thing for me, man. You know, you never know. I, again, I was just, you know, I was surrounded by, by great people, mm -hmm. you know, and that was the interesting thing for me though, was going up there to have the initial meetings. And I think I made two or three CDs at that point, maybe just two. And, and, um, and you know, and they, they looked over all the songs and they were saying, well, you know, these songs are cool, but there's not really enough curriculum in these songs for us. And I had no idea what they're talking about. You know, I didn't know <laughs> it's like I, my I, old life. Yeah. <laughs> it was crazy. You know, and then they said, well, this one is good cause there's movement in it. But then I, I developed an early childhood music education program with the Brooklyn conservatory a couple of years ago. And all of a sudden, then it, it made all the sense in the world. We got to have curriculum man. it's, it's, that's the whole, that's the whole deal. <laughs> If you're trying, I mean, if you're trying to teach with music, I mean, you gotta gotta start somewhere. Yeah, it's good, but but to see, I like the way you know. There's always such a good amount of humor to it mm -hmm. in the, on Sesame Street, which I think is, I guess, when stuff loses me sometimes. You know, if I don't quite connect with, not that I know it all or listen to a lot of it these days, but you know, I think a lot a lot of times the um, children's music it does kind of lose me if the humor isn't there mm -hmm. you know i think that's like a i think that's a kind of a crucial element or it takes itself too seriously yeah you know, you know? yeah that's like, right. or or it's too complex i find that that's happened a couple of times where songs that i've been writing or my kids have seen and they 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 just goes over their head and then you're losing you're lost because yeah. it just you know they could be watching anything you know but or listening to anything but if it goes over their head too far and then i've I been mean, Here's something we should talk about. Like, how how, how simple do you get? How sing-songy do you get? How, you know, how do you make the melody that you're 
you know, how do you make your melody stick in a kid's head? I find that to be one of the most fascinating things these days is like, what sticks in my head and why? And why? what sticks in my kids' heads and why? Like my, my one daughter remembers every lyric to everything and will just start like singing melodies in the corner just because that's how she's wired and she can just remember melodies. And then I'm just, is it because she's heard it a thousand times, which is probable? Or is it that <laughs> it's actually, you know, that great of, I don't know. I just, I, I, but, but when I first started writing music, I wasn't like a melody guy. I was just trying to figure out how the chords <laughs> went along and then throwing a melody in there that pretty much just went from root to root to root. And that, and now all I do is think about melody. It's all melody all the time, you know? Wow. So, so, which is weird because, because then when you think about it, like it's not like most pop songs are, songs are harmonically complex. You know, if you look at, I was just writing a, an arrangement of like the ABCs, which is like ones and fours and fives, you know, it's not like, it's not that complex. It's pretty simple. <laughs> and you're like, oh shit, that's how simple it is. <laughs> and then and then it's just all about melody. It's all about what you're, you know, what you can latch into. I yeah, man. I, I think there's so much it seems like some of the songs that I wrote along the way, I mean, I mean, I I'm, I might write five songs tops for all our for each of our records because there's so many old songs to bring into it that I always feel like that's important. But sometimes if I if I'm really tired and I write something and you know, just kind of quickly and not think about it and not over, you know, over bake it. Mm -hmm. um, turns out to be so much better. You know, there's so much room on the side of simplicity that I wasn't aware of before. You know, I just so naturally like to comp overcomplicate things. And, you know, I think once my brain gets in there, it's that's the beginning of the end, you mm -hmm. know. But I remember when I was in, I would go into my daughter's kindergarten class and play for them. And, um, one time I ran out of songs and they wanted more. And I, and I remembered this one that I had learned as a kid called Pay Me My Money Down, which is a, which is a work song. And I learned it through the Georgia Sea Island Singers. And it's basically, um, it, well, it's a work song. So it's call and response. It's pay me, you owe me. Pay me my money down. Pay me or go to jail. Pay me my money down. Every other line is pay me my money down from beginning to end. And then thought I heard the captain say, pay me my money down. Tomorrow is our sailing day. Pay me my money down. They just loved it. You know, it had nothing to do with their experience <laughs> at all. <laughs> and they just loved it. And they latched on to that line, pay me my money down, you know, and they could sing along within 20 seconds. Yeah. And and it was kind of subversive because it had to do with money. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was, it was crazy. It told me so much, though. But, you know, the, the music out of the Georgia Sea Islands is, I think, inspirational in that way. Bessie Jones and all that stuff, you know, so simple but grounded in, grounded in tradition. But, but I think sometimes the call and response, you know, is... is we, have, we, we talk about call and response a lot at, at Sesame Street and how effective it is and, you know... Just, just getting a kid not only to repeating the same thing to them so they latch onto it, but having them come back with it and the interactivity of it all, I think is, we've been doing that a lot with, with Sesame Street, like stomp your feet and wave your arms and clap and do all this stuff so that the object being that the kid gets up off the couch and engages with the television, but in a way that they're dancing along with it as opposed to just sitting there, yeah. which, is, which is interesting, which is hard. I mean, like, when's the last time you were watching television, something happened, you're like, I want to get up. Maybe it was like <laughs> when someone great was elected to, like, presidency or something, you know, there was some great political thing, and you're like, yes, and you stand up, but like, that's it. Like, you know, I dance with my kids, but even now, it's like later on at night, and I'm tired, and I'm like, I don't want to get up, you know, and so, but, uh, <laughs> But that was but that was the thing we did recently was like try to get kids up 
get kids up out of their chair and dancing, which is hard because there's, you also don't have the live element of it, which is something that you live in, which I don't like, you know, performing live. I, I haven't done in like for the, in that kind of way in a while. And it's much easier to get people off their asses to dance when you're right next to them as opposed to trying to communicate through the television. Yeah, well, that's an achievement, though. That's, it's, and it's such a good thing. You know, it is such a good thing to get up and move. I feel like I wish there had been more of an emphasis on that when I was a kid. The idea of dancing as just a part of everyday life. Mm-hmm. You know, I think maybe that's a bit cultural, too. I grew up in New Hampshire, not not known as the dan- you know freestyle dance capital of the world. <laughs> so I had to kind of learn it all in adulthood. Live free or die. Or dance. <laughs> yeah, but, um, but that, that, that makes so much sense, man. You know, and I was thinking, too, about just simplicity. And, and um, did you hear the new Bob Dylan record? No. Shadows in the Night. It's all songs that were made popular by Frank Sinatra. Oh, wow. And so you're listen, listening to some of those like Autumn Leaves or mm-hmm. Some Enchanted Evening and I realize you could take the lyrics to those songs, I mean, a quarter of a page. There's mm-hmm. almost nothing there. And mm-hmm. yet it's everything. You know, it's, it's, the poetry is so deep. There's not a wasted word. You know, the economy of it all is yeah. incredible. But those tunes are also harmonically kind of significant. Like Autumn Leaves, for example, is not like a four chord thing it's like there's a few more chords in it than that yeah but yet in those days again it, as, as sophisticated as the harmony was the melody dun, 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 it's so simple that it's just like you know like immediately in your head <laughs> yeah it's good to um it's nice to hear check that record out if, I will. You, if you're if you're at What's all a bob Shadow? dylan fan shadows in the night i think mm. but it's uh what is what a crazy idea and he's his singing is so good you know, it's to hear the perspective of an older man mm-hmm. thinking, you know, singing something like Autumn Leaves is, is deep. But, you know, he's clearly inside the music. Mm-hmm. You can understand him? Because the last time I saw Bob Dylan, which was many years ago, I couldn't really understand him. Oh, I you, love him, but I couldn't understand him. You can understand every word. It's, <laughs> oh, that's good. good. The, the, the arrangements are delicate. You know, mm-hmm. they just, they're just barely there. It's like wind. Yeah, like that last Johnny Cash record, which was so great. The, the one that Rick Rubin produced was the same way. It was just about like his crazy haunting voice and really whatever else was going on really didn't matter. It yeah. could have been a totally acapella record, you know? Yep. Yep. Now it's fun to see, it's fun to see artists getting that amount of freedom and, and being at a point in their lives when they can make any decision they want and follow through on it and what they, you know, what they end up deciding to do and what's meaningful at that point. Mm-hmm. It's, it's great, man. It's nice to think about just makes me think about what does it even mean to be an artist? You know, what's the, what's the deal? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you're right. I, you know, I, I talk about that a lot with my wife, even and with people who, her, who are interested, which aren't many, but uh, that, uh, I'm interested. Do, Bill. Thank you, Dan. Somebody's interested. And all you listeners out there, <laughs> anyone who's hung on this long. <laughs> yeah. Right. But about like, like, you know, I, for me, there's like, there's the artist, there's, there's being an artist and, and being involved in an art, as it were, like music. And then there's my side of it is a little different because there's a corporate aspect to it and there's a production aspect to it. It's not just me writing songs and making records. And there are days where I wish it was, <laughs> but it's not like I have. I like to think I'm my own boss, but I'm not. And, you know, I have deadlines and things I have to do. And, and there's, you know, there are a lot of people listen to my songs and have to approve them before they go anywhere, you know, and stuff like that. And that's it's a very different it's it's almost it's like it's that constant battle like when 
when your art becomes a job and when your job becomes an art. Like in the beginning, you're like, holy cow, someone's paying me to make to write music. And then later on, you're like, holy cow, I don't want your input anymore. I just <laughs> want to write music, you know? So it's just, so, so I, I go back and forth about that all the time because in the same way, I don't really listen to music other than during the day. I, I've never made up my own record of own music. And furthermore, and this is really crazy, I've never written a song for myself. Mm. Ever in my life, really? I've, oh, not once. Wow! And people ask me like, "You had daughters, like, weren't you inspired?" I'm like, "Yeah, I was." But then I had to go to work the next day and write a song for like Cookie Monster. So I don't. It's just the honest, honest truth. Like, I mean, I wrote songs kind of for myself when I was in college, but I was like in a like a a, a Paul Simon Gracelandy band, and it was just like about smoking pot and hanging, you know, as you do. Sure. And so, but but I've never like written. I've never even wanted to. Well, that's not true. Maybe I wanted to. My wife the other day was like, "Why don't you write a record for yourself?" And I was like, "Oh." I can do that. Like I never, it never even crossed my mind. I don't know. It's very, it's just, I guess it's when, when your business is your music and your music is your business. And it's just a very weird line to walk. Yeah. I remember when I was, after I left my rock and roll band before, before the family stuff started, I had some years where I was just didn't know what to do. And through, you know, thank, thankfully through my, my ex-wife was a uh, TV a director of TV commercials, and so I, I, I um, was able to do some music for TV commercials, and I remember instrumental music, and I remember that feeling, you know, sitting in a room of people, you know, and you bring something in, and everybody's weighing in on it, and think, wait a minute, you can't weigh in, you don't know anything about music. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but of course, they know a lot more about TV commercials than I right. do, so they can, they should be weighing in, right. you know. You sort of have to figure out a way to... <laughs> communicate yeah no was, we were speaking different languages a lot of the time and um and i was you know trying to speak the language of the artist that felt like it was already perfect <laughs> right i like i have i do a lot of like commercials and other documentary sort of things and when the people start like communicating with me in colors like, like <laughs> it needs to be like more yellow and less green and i'm like I've, I quit <laughs> or like, can I fire myself? Cause I just can't put up with this anymore. And then, you know, you like, you know, you, you, you mix the base down and you send it back and you're like, oh, okay, done. And you're like, oh, okay, that's what it was. That's the yellow part. I get it. And that's the color that makes sense there all the time, all the time. Well, it seems like anybody who's listened to this podcast for this long deserves <laughs> some celebrity stories. <laughs> and we have good ones. Yeah. You used to live around the corner from Cheryl Crow, and apparently one time you had an experience with Lou Reed. So, all right, I'll do the Lou Reed one if you'll, if you'll do one of yours. Okay, cool. All Your right. Turn. Go ahead. So we were going to do, um, through my uh, agent at the time, um, Linda Brumbach, she said, you know, I can, she worked with Laurie Anderson. She said, you know, I can... We could we could see if Lou wants to do a song. Do you have one in mind? And I said, "How about What a Wonderful World, the Louis Armstrong tune?" So Linda, I don't know how she did, but she set it up. And I said, "You know, can you just tell Lou's office we got to make sure that um, he knows he's not coming to a studio. He's just coming to our our you know my co-producer's house. It's in a little apartment." And uh, they said, "No problem." So the doorbell rings. It's the big day. We've recorded the track. Lou's gonna come in and sing on it. And I run down to answer the door. I say, hey, Lou, it's Dan Zanes. And he said, yeah, Lou Reed, can we make this fast? And um, and so then I'm already just kind of sweating through my clothes, you know, and we're walking up the stairs trying to make small talk. And he gets in, he goes, he goes, yeah, I need the phone. I just want to call for a car. And he shows up at 2, promptly at 2, calls for a car to pick him up at 2.15. <laughs> so now I'm losing my mind. And uh, But what happened was he put on the headphones 
you know, and, and he, he requested a, a Shure uh, SM58. So for people who don't know, that's the most common microphone on the planet to sing into. Every, you know, crappy like rock. Yeah, every crappy rock club in the world has <laughs> like a... 12 of them. <laughs> and that's the one he wanted to sing into. And so we had it ready for him. His back was hurting. He sat on the couch. He had forgotten his glasses. We had to tape the lyrics about eight feet out from him so he could read them. The whole thing, I didn't know, you know, and then he puts on the headphones, you know, and I'm losing my mind because he's, he's so great, you know, and he, here he is in this little room with us and he puts on the headphones and he starts singing to the track and immediately it was obvious to me that he didn't know the song and that's not a, you know, that's not a two chord song, you know, and, and, um, and I'm just going, what is, what's going to happen, man? This is, this is a complete disaster. And he's cranky. And um, and uh, and then he looks over at me and he says, who's playing this guitar? And I said, it's me. And he nods and he goes, it's really good. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Yes. And, and then so he goes, all right, let's do it again. And he said, if you don't get it in two takes with me, you're not going to get it. <laughs> and he doesn't even know the tune. So, he's, so he goes into it. And then halfway through, I realized something. Not only did he know the tune, but he had a absolutely clear sense in his mind of what he was doing and what he was doing with the song. And he was, and it was, it was a jazz vocal. You know, he was, he was coming at it from an entirely different direction, and it was perfect. And um, you know, so we did it again. He goes, "Ah, oh, you want?" You know, then he's loosening up and he's sounding great. And he's, he's, he's going, "Are oh, those beatboxers?" I go, "Yeah." And he goes. Yeah, it's good. You know, it's like, and then they he starts talking about gear with Rob, the engineer, and then the, once the gear talk starts, then it's you know everybody's were laughing and oh. hugging, and, <laughs> and that was it. By the end, you know, he was it was he was there for an hour, and it was it, it was you know probably one of the best things that that I feel like we ever did. And I I saw him at a, at a party at Annie Leibovitz's, um, you know, later that year, and I said, hey man. I just want to thank you for that again. And I realized something about you. I said, you're a jazz singer, man. And he said, hey, you ever need me for one of these projects, you just let me know. <laughs> and he gave me a big hug. That's awesome. <laughs> I love that. That's a serious Lou Reed story. Oh, man. <laughs> what do you got? Uh, I've, I, you know, uh, my first, the first tune I ever wrote for Sesame Street was this, this tune called What I Am. And uh, I wrote it with this guy, Chris Jackson. And I will... Uh, he and I have collaborated a lot over the years. Anyway, I was walking. I had this studio on Orchard Street in the basement. It always flooded, and I hated it, but I needed a place to work. So anyway, I was walking out of it, or I don't know what I was doing. And I called him. I called Chris, and I left a message on his voicemail, and it was like, if what I am is what's in me, then something, 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 and like 20 minutes later, he called me back, and he's like, I got it, and he sent it to me. And at wow. the time, at the time, it had... We knew it was for Will I Am, and the idea was what I am, or yeah, what I am for Will I Am, and uh, it had this bridge, it had this whole thing, and we were super psyched about it, and it was great. And then, so we sent it to him, and we didn't hear hear from him for a while, and then he likes it. He's gonna produce it himself because apparently Will I Am is a very picky dude. I now now I know, <laughs> but he was so so okay. So we're gonna meet him at the studio, which was our studio on Fifth Street. So he rolls up in 
first he calls me and he calls me Mr. Sherman, which I thought was really funny. <laughs> he's like, hello, Mr. Sherman. I was like, hello, Mr. I am. I didn't even know what to call him. So I was like, hi. He's like, what are we doing? I was like, well, the, the, the lyricist had to change a few lyrics. We just need to change some stuff around. He's like, all right, I'll be there in five minutes. At like four Suburbans pull up, and he comes out, and this is one of the funniest <laughs> things I've ever seen. He had a, a Michael Jack, a plastic Michael Jackson pendant, circa like off the wall era, like hanging around his neck. Nice, like like Flavor Flav, but like a Michael Jackson pendant. Wow. And I was like, I don't. Uh, wow, how do you pull that off? How do you pull that <laughs> off, really? And so he comes into our studio, and he's like. He's looking around at our gear, and he's like, yeah, why don't we just go to my place? Because I have all my compression settings and all everything. I was like, all right, where's your place? And he's like, Wang Chung on Varick Street. And I was like, okay. I think that's what it's called. Is that what it's called? I think that's what it's called. Anyway, it's, it's like the Wu-Tang like studio where Wu-Tang made all the records and all these great hip-hop records. And it's on yeah. Varick Street on like the 15th floor. So we, we get into one of Will I Am's humongous suburbans and drive to Varick Street and get out. <laughs> and so, so he's in a studio, at which it's like a 88 channel board and then there's like a Mac and a Neumann and, and him and then there's a live room big enough for an orchestra but no one's using it and it's just him and like his assistants and anything so we spend the next three or four hours talking about music and he re-records the vocals and he produces all his own vocals and what he did that I loved is that every time he did a line he would stop and then play it on these speakers that were like the size of two bookcases as loud as humanly possible. <laughs> and I was like, holy... And I was just sitting there, and Chris, my friend Chris, he, we were just there, and we were just like, wow. And like he would stop and like take phone calls from Jan Wenner. So he'd be like, hey, Jan, yeah, okay. And they'd walk over there, and we'd be like, yes, that's Jan <laughs> Wenner on the phone. Yeah, like crazy, crazy. Anyway, and he finishes it, and he's super nice, and he was just like explaining his philosophy on music, and that he really liked the song. He actually cut out my bridge, which I loved. He cut it out and just made it sort of the same thing. And, it was great. <laughs> and then he came to film it, and you know, he's like, has this, you know, was having a love affair with Grover, as everybody does, and it was a very surreal day, and then the song went to win an Emmy. It was super great, and that was wow. that. But yeah, that was one of the wild days, although they've been coming fast and furious. I, I was in the studio with One Direction. I was in the studio with wow. um, Bruno Mars. Like, you know, like, these crazy people is just it's nuts. So how was Janelle Monet? Was she fun to work with? She was great. She recorded at her own place in Atlanta. So I talked to her on the phone and she did it and then she just sent it to me. And that's been happening more and more these days is like people like Bruno Mars recorded his on the, on his tour bus, <laughs> you know, and then like Juanes recorded his in the basement of Madison Square Garden because that's where he was like crazy stuff <laughs> like that. There were people just like a microphone and like a laptop and they just do it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And then I was just in L.A. and I was at like East West Studios and Henson Studios, like the world famousy like Sinatra and the Tijuana Brass recorded here. And you're like, huh? You know, you're just like, <laughs> sitting, you're like whoa. And the, the studio game in L.A. is just a whole different thing. It's really mind boggling. <clears throat> but uh, yeah. and nothing's going to bring me down. Oh. Never going to stop. Got to go oh. because I know I'll keep getting stronger. That's it for this episode of the Talkhouse Music Podcast. I'm Michael Azared, Editor-in-Chief of the Talkhouse. Thanks to our producer-engineer, Elia Einhorn. For more Talkhouse Music Podcasts, and for lots of great writing about music by some excellent musicians, by all means visit thetalkhouse.com music.